Johnny Voy, thank you so much for being on Food Unscripted. It's my pleasure to be here. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Joseph Mariano. I know he was a huge influence on you and a really big mentor in your life. So can you share a little bit more about him and uh, maybe you know the, the inspiration uh, that you wanna pass down to other people uh, through the positions that you took over from him. So that's uh, at Eastman and Rochester. So he was a massive artist and his value system of artistry and of music making are probably the most important to me as, as an artist, truly. Um, he was raised in a home which apparently was always playing Italian opera. And so this vocal approach to very natural approach to line, to nuance, uh, to the freedom in the music and was really kind of epitomized his, his playing. He had more variety in his playing than I've ever yet still heard in an artist. Um, it was, he could, he could at one moment sound the, uh, almost rough and, and, and startling, shocking. And then the next moment it would be like something out of heaven. It, it, was, it was just massive changes. And, and he was, he, I think he was so creative and so, so unleashed that it was truly an experience. And the sound was, it could just fill a stadium. You know, it was just, it was breath. So it took a while sometimes to understand from him the difference between volume and breadth. You know, he would he would say, no, no, you don't need to be that loud. You're too loud. He thought everyone was too loud. He would say that and then he would demonstrate for you. And to me, it sounded louder. And then it would, you know, I didn't really understand. I didn't say anything, of course, but then I eventually realized, no, it's actually breadth. It's like his sound is all around him. And it would be in back of him too. It was an extraordinary thing. So he he demanded that from me. He he did not want. Um, he wasn't really interested in my technique, and because I had had Roger Stevens, who had done such a, I mean, I just owe him everything I can do on the flute. It it he had he had made sure that my technique was completely ready and so on and, and sound everything. He was just an incredible teacher. And he said, you know, when, when he sent me back to Eastman, he said, you're not going to be, and when you graduate from there, you won't play the flute any better than you play today. But when you graduate, you will be a much better musician than you are now. And that was completely and utterly right. So yeah, like he sets you up with a foundation to then you know, explore yourself as a musician with Mariano. Right, that's absolutely right. So Mariano would only really listen to Bach and and Brahms and Daphnis and and Debussy, and that's all he wanted to hear from me. He would never even listen to to Giandolinos or something. So you can do that yourself. You go do that yourself. So he he didn't even weigh in on those. And in the first day that you know I brought him an etude. He said, that's the last etude I ever want to hear you play. And that was, he, he wouldn't hear anything else. So that was the end of that. It was a good thing Stevens had prepared all of that. No kidding. So yeah. <laughs> I was at the right, at the right time with the right person and <clears throat> took a, a, a very long time to understand that 
how how my own personality and what I wanted to say would merge with with the composer. And that, that was really a very long process and kind of painful. And then to understand what Mariana was talking about when he talked about simplicity um, and line, those kind of things didn't make sense to me because I thought that everything should be extremely passionate. I was very immature. So I would just play everything the way I wanted to play it. So everything sounded the same, but I thought it was all very exciting, but it took a long time to understand that there's there are there are more kinds of emotion than that. <laughs> Actually, I think I found a quote of yours somewhere where you say, you know, like true um, artistry is that moment where you, as the musician, um, meet you know the composer, uh, and you your two ideas kind of meld, and you you finally understand what the composer is trying to do, and so then you're delivering that message. So I think that kind of hits it right on the head. Right, you have we 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 have to be true to the composer, and yet everybody does not play it the same, and it's still valid. Right. right. So, so there there's a a mysterious meeting of who we are as an artist and the way we hear it, and that composer, and eventually that becomes, I think, subconscious, and that's the reason we do things like music history and theory and and all of those other other subjects is is to become familiar truly familiar to meet the uh, meet the composer as you say to meet the music and to understand it and it becomes all internalized in a way so it's not it's not so so necessarily conscious and then and then you have a freedom within that when when you've established the parameters of that composer there's a great freedom within that and you can truly unleash yourself and not violate the style at last so that that's a very long process that's not easy but that's what we're doing in in advanced artistry right? uh, i wanted to uh, find out a little bit more about maybe the pressures of your job um, at age 21 which is so young uh, you were named principal flute in the rochester philharmonic um, can you talk a little bit about what that audition experience was like and maybe the tremendous amount of responsibility that was placed on you at that time as well Gee, I've never been asked that before. That's fun. So the way it had begun um, is there was an audition for uh, Rochester is set up uh, in an unusual way. There are only two people in each wind and brass section. Well, brass is a little different, but wind in general um, who are paid full time. And then they hire the third person on a per service basis. Um, and they've been able to do that historically because of the wealth of professional musicians here you know so that had really been a student position for a, a kind of a long time people Kajala played in that position and he had a history so I believe that I was not supposed to get that um, but I I decided I wanted to audition the beginning of my sophomore year and um, and I really don't think it was planned and somehow something must have you know gone wrong what right for me but wrong <laughs> Right, <laughs> and, and I ended up playing in that position. So I had been in the orchestra for three years, uh, second flute, and um, and then the first flutist um, was ill. The last, uh, off and on, like the last year or so, over especially the last few months, and she would cancel at the very, very last second, like literally at midnight before the first rehearsal, and. Of course, they would call the the full time um, second player, and um, if it was something like symphonic metamorphosis, she would say, "Absolutely not, not on your life." I'm not playing that tomorrow morning. <laughs> call Bonnie, 
And, and, you know, I guess I was young and foolish, but I said, okay, sure. So, so I stepped in on a number of things like that. So maybe that helped a little bit. And then, then um, she, the, the lady who was ill um, did, did leave in that June, May or June. And I took the audition for Philharmonic and, and, you know, won the first flute job and Leon, actually, we were hired together. So Leon Bicey was hired as a full-time second. Um, and yeah, that, the other lady, yeah, it was really fun. The other lady who was, um, had been in second moved, her husband got a position elsewhere. So both jobs were open. They hired both of us in the same audition. And meanwhile, I also, I, I went, I had been down to Dallas to take the audition for principal and was offered that. So neither orchestra had a contract for the next fall. So I just had letters of intent from two orchestras and, and no position. So I, I went home to Los Angeles and um, Long Beach with my parents and went to the beach and waited to see which orchestra was going to settle first. And <laughs> so the way it worked out was that Rochester settled at midnight before the first day of the, the first rehearsal contractually. Oh. Dallas didn't didn't actually settle that year until December. They ended up locked out and didn't begin until like after the first of the year. So that's why I stayed in Rochester. I mean, it just, you know, once again, a decision that wasn't the how that works out. Yeah. Yeah, just the way it worked out. And the or the Phil, Rochester Philharmonic was searching for a music director. So we had, you know, guest conductor after guest conductor, and then finally David Zimmerman was hired. And so I had 10 years under him as, as music director, and I would trade those 10 years for anything. Um, I learned an immense amount about being a musician. Um, he, I learned how to play in time um, and still get my point across artistically Be up to that point. As long as I had enough rubato and I could make a big enough retard, I could, I could yeah, do something I thought was yeah. expressive, but to do that without taking extra time, and he wanted to do exactly with his baton. He was one of these that did be on his beat, not a little after. So I had to train the whole orchestra to do that. And he knew before I had even played a note if it was going to be late. And he was right. You know, he was like, you get this dirty look. So <laughs> it was absolutely it, one of, he's one of the greats, as far as I am concerned, one of the great conductors of all time and American. Um, it, so that, that was my real experience in the orchestra. I learned a tremendous amount and I'm really glad for the time. And I left when I was just gone too much to do the solo work. Yeah. And it really wasn't fair anymore. So. I mean, your, your playing, though, in the Philharmonic has been described as very, I mean, by your peers, as very spontaneous, um, not really playing something the same way twice. So how did you achieve that? Well, it sounds like trying to always be uh, with the conductor and always together. And like you said, not much room for leeway. I think I learned, that's a great question. I think I learned to do it with nuance. And to make my point with nuance, to make my point with with the the shape of the phrase, the way the phrase, you know, spin a phrase, things like that. I had I had to learn learn to do that. It, it's a little bit what a little bit like what Master Povich demonstrated, which you know that Bach was was the, still one of the most profound performances I've ever heard, and I I think you could have set a metronome to it. It was it was so flawlessly flowing in in it, it, so the structure of what he did was completely undisturbed. 
and 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 then so the structure hangs together and then you have all this freedom within it it's the ultimate really it's the ultimate artistry and so that's i think that's what it that's one of the great things that i learned from playing those years with david zimmon and you always knew that you wanted a solo career that was something that you felt like was always uh pulling you uh, and then you finally felt like it was the right decision the right move in 1984 so what was that experience like? Was that kind of thrilling to make that big change? It was, it wasn't, it wasn't a snap decision. I, yeah. I thought about it a lot. And what I finally came to, you know, it's, it's a big question mark. You don't know how it's going to work out. You know, I had some indication that it would go. I mean, I certainly wasn't, oh, I think I'd love to do this. I wonder if it'll work. It wasn't that bad, but, you know, people had said, you can do this and and you you have a certain amount of input that you can hold the stage you know that kind of thing like it, there are different personalities that's all it's not a question of quality i don't think if somebody's a soloist or an orchestral player it's not a quality thing it's a personality thing some people adore to be in the orchestra the most and and some people really love to be standing up and playing the concerto or a solo recital and as you just said you really know a lot <laughs> me um that's right i really did i always wanted to do that maybe it came from the piano all those years with piano i don't know but it was something that was really in my heart and when i first talked to mariano about it i said you know i really don't want to be an orchestra set to him <laughs> can you imagine uh, I, I really want to be a soloist and he and this remember this is before even ron paul really right. had entered the stage so he was playing but he it was mostly in smaller concerts and it really wasn't well known in the united states and uh so there really wasn't any sort of precedent and and i said no, i want i want to do i want to be a soloist and he said oh well you'll play solos you know if you get your job in the orchestra he said and then then you can play a concerto every few years and i said well i'd want to play every few years i want to play all the time and he said no no just get your job in the orchestra like, so i did but it, this burning didn't leave and then finally the decision was kind of like this i've shared this with students a great deal is is I would, I decided, I felt that I would rather in a few years say, well, you know, I tried, I left and it was reason, you know, I got some good playing um, and it was my, it was a decision that, um, but I, I did what was in my heart and I gave it a shot. I, I found that I'd rather be saying that than in 10 years than saying, I can see I should have tried this and I'm so sorry I did, now it's too yeah. late. Yeah. And, and I, I just preferred to, to go the first way. Was so there, like any particular concert or performance where you kind of pinched yourself and thought, you know, this is it. This is what I was hoping for this whole time. I feel like I finally have made my dream come true. I don't think so. Actually, no, I don't think so. I can't point to anything. I, I think it just, I, I talked to a lot of people about, I think the biggest concern was how we start, you know, yeah. how do you get this thing started? And when I would speak with people, Jan Degatani, the great mezzo, um, we recorded, the, commissioned and recorded the Benson songs together and did quite a lot. She sang on both of my telly concerts, actually marvelous woman and marvelous artist. It was really nice of her to play, sing with me. Um, I, I would ask these kind of people, well, how do you, how do you get a solo career? How do you get this started? And they would say, well, you just play the very best you can. Each opportunity you get, you play the very best you can. And somebody will ask you to do something else. And that was not what I was looking for. 
that's not what I wanted to know. I wanted some magic answer. And I kept getting that answer. And, and that's true. That's really true. And then she said, you need to record. She said, if there was one single thing that it helped her get on the map, it was recording. So I started out with that too and started out recording and, and it does, it did. I don't know if it's, it still is very good, um, but it, it, it began to get your, your playing out because radio stations would, would use it, especially something a little shorter. If they have three minutes left after a program, they might stick your recording on. And, and I think that that was helpful too. And then eventually management, um, was, was helpful sometimes, um, <laughs> not always. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, that's really the way it, it, it started. And, um, plus I, of course I kept the Eastman job. So yeah. all those 10 years or 12, I was doing both jobs, which were both full-time jobs. So I didn't have any family. I just, I've just had, you know, I was married with my marvelous husband and we just both worked and he was very interested in everything I was doing came and was extremely supportive. And that was another thing that helped with the solo careers. He said, I want you to go for it. This is what you want to do. And I'd been feeling kind of down. Like I, I would really like to play recitals again. I would like to play this way again. I've been in the orchestra for a number of years. And he said, he said, you're playing recital. And, and he went down and got, he rented some place for me to play. And we got a pianist and he called the critic and said, you should come and review her concert. It was hilarious when I look back on it. But he, he was very helpful. And it really did kind of pull me out of the um, blues. You know, yeah. it was very, it, and so maybe, maybe that was a little bit of a turning point. It was just, there was, there was a, a future in the way that, um, you know, for me that that was something that was in my heart so so I kept going with Eastman and and I still have so that's the way that combines better with being yeah. out of town right and did any of that change uh you know a soulless life when you decided to have a family oh my goodness yes actually that my my the arrival of our first son was close to the time it was right after I left the orchestra, but it not not it was it had nothing to do with it. So I wasn't expecting when I left the orchestra. It was a completely separate separate decision. And then the following year, um, then we we were expecting it. We'd been married a long time, a ten years, almost eleven. So no one was expecting us to have any children. And you know, after a certain amount of time, people stop asking you. Right. You know, nobody anymore nobody says anything and so when when we turned up having we were going to have a baby people were just astonished beyond and then we continued another one and another one um uh, yeah it's just I think it's so fascinating um just how multifaceted your career is and, and how you are as a person something else that was so funny to read about was that you were um, actually featured in Vogue's pattern magazine um at one point they did an article on you because you had used a pattern from the magazine to make some solo dresses out of some recital dresses right. um I know you probably did that out of necessity you can't is it a, a faux pas to wear a recital gown to two recitals I feel like it's one and then done um oh that's so, hilarious it depends on where it is so yeah that's oh. a funny question because something happened months like that I, I made all of my gowns um, uh, so I have many performance gowns that I, I made, including my costume for the Caragliano for the Pied Piper, made a costume yeah. with the big cape and everything. Um, 
but in fact, I, I did a festival in Victoria. It's defunct now. It's a very outstanding festival for quite a number of years, went there in the summer. And we, every year he played a concerto with the, with the Victoria Symphony. He's, the man who ran that festival also had the Victoria Symphony involved. So people played concertos. And apparently I brought the same dress. It had been several years. I didn't even think about it. And then there were some people sitting in the audience overhearing people behind her. Um, and they go, oh, I remember when she wore that dress for the Nielsen. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. <laughs> What are the odds? Yeah. Isn't that so funny? Um, yeah. uh, I want to shift a little bit to your teaching style. Um, and I found this wonderful uh, quote from Mindy Kaufman, um, just talking about you as a teacher and just being so extremely supportive of her and making her feel like she had all the confidence to do what she needed to do to ultimately win her job with the New York Phil. Um, that was really kind of your secret was giving students the tools they needed to feel encouraged and confident. Um, so, you know, do you think that uh, you can talk a little bit more about how you gravitated towards that theme for your teaching? Do you see that as something that like a gift that you give your students? That's really nice of you to say. Yes, I, I mean, I think I feel I feel that way as a even personally. Yeah. With, with people with anyone so I just feel that when when you are when when people let you know what what your strengths are and and what you do that's special and what you do that's that's really noteworthy and and is moving to other people that that that's incredibly important to know it's it's as important or more important than knowing what your weak spots are and then and then you know, with that kind of with, with like, who, who are you as an artist? So that's always the focus of my teaching is, is who, who are you? What, what do you have to say? And, and then everything we do is about the tools for that, you know, to develop the tools so that you have the vehicle to, to be who you are and to, and to really impart to the audience what you want to impart. So Part of that I feel is is it's it's in absolutely um, you can't untwine them at confidence and that so so where your confidence is founded and and there's no substitute for doing the work when it comes to confidence if if you know you really didn't do the work then you're thinking you didn't practice enough you know that's right. going to your mind when you're playing so <laughs> doesn't work right we've all done that. So I've got to know that I did the work and I put the time in and I really have mastered this. And then, and then it's about, about what, what I have to bring. So if I can focus on, on who I am and what, what I would like to say um, to the audience, what I have to bring to the audience, um, the range of, of what I've experienced and, and the range of love and joy and sorrow, all the things that, that you bring to the stage. Um, that if if it's about that so it's what you're giving there and if to the extent that I can get away from from what I have to prove there that if I have to prove myself and prove that I'm worthy that's most I think that's the most vulnerable position to be in that's not that's not what I would like to be doing that's interesting so, that you say that that part is vulnerable because it feels like it's also very vulnerable to kind of let your guard down and just you know, use your voice and let all of the other stuff 
go away. So how, do you have any tools, any um, advice for people on how to kind of let your guard down and just be you on stage? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, it's not instant. It takes time. And I, I remember specifically playing a recital and playing one phrase the way I wanted to, really wanted to, where I felt I was completely in love with myself in that phrase. And, and that had taken a long time to come to that where I dared to do that. So performing more is definitely helpful. You know, the, the more times you, you go out there and, and kind of bury your soul um, and, and dare to, to really, really play what you meant to play, it was only one phrase and then it became more more where I, it would be almost the whole concert where I could completely be myself, maybe with the exception of the very beginning when everybody's a little more nervous, but where, where you could just dare. Um, so certainly the, the more you perform, the better. So in my teaching, I have people play recitals, a lot of recitals. We don't wait and just play one senior recital ever. Um, we play most of my, many of my students play like three, three solo recitals a year, um, certainly two and always two. And, and I'm, I'm less concerned about how perfect that recital was as, as that they get up and play. We, it's gotta be good. It can't be terrible. That's, right. you know, insulting, but, but we get it together and, and they, we, we do repertoire that's important. That's going to help people grow and, and go out and play. And, and I think each time you do that, you know, we, we, and I end up talking to them about what they're going to focus on when they go out there and, and what they want to bring, um, what beauty they want to bring to the audience and, and so on. And they're giving a gift to the audience or giving themselves. So I think that's a, a very big part. And I was actually at Eastman. I don't know how much also, I know that in Europe, there was a great deal going on in the way of master classes, but we'd all heard about Nice and, you know, Ron Paul giving all the master classes. They didn't really even teach privately at that time. They, everything was pretty much in classes and there were no studio classes over here. So I decided that I was going to do them. And, and so I, I was the first one doing it at Eastman. Now it, it's, wow. it's considered standard everywhere. Yeah. But I, yeah. I started, and the reason I started was so my students could have more experience getting up and playing. Yeah. And where the pressure wasn't as great, and they could try out things from memory because we need to do it a bunch of times until we are pretty sure we're going to remember it, right? And so that, that was a, a lot. So just talking, you know, thinking about why we're out there, why, what we want to express, and so on. And, you know, this is such a huge topic, but... Um, my, my actor's son, um, I heard him give a seminar. In fact, it was for my summer seminar. It was a few years ago. And he went through uh, Tisch in New York and, and he was in the Stella Adler studio. And, and uh, you know, so the person who was running the class, I wasn't even my idea, asked him to give a, a class in stage presence and being on stage and so on from an actor's point of view. And so I, this is first for me, I never heard about it. You know, the mom doesn't hear about anything. So, <laughs> so he gave class and the title of the class was truth and vulnerability. And I just said, are you kidding? Did you think that up, Diedrich? And he said, no, that's, that's uh, Stella Adler acting uh, method. And I said, that sums up everything we do. Yeah. And in order to be vulnerable on stage, you never give 
it's impossible to give a great perform a truly great performance where people are moved. You must know who that person is. You must get to know that person. And if they can't unbear unbear their soul, if you want to put it that way, and and truly be who they are, and that involves being vulnerable out there and dare. What you just said a few minutes ago is very profound. You we have to dare to do that, and we know that there's a possibility of being rejected that goes with it. So these are things we have to really think about. So, so, and you tell the truth out there. And the truth is about, about what you truly feel about the music, not about what somebody else said about the music or how someone else plays it or, but how do you, how do you feel? And, and then you're going to impart that and people are, are then genuinely moved. But I was, I was absolutely blown away by, obviously the actors know all about this. So. Yeah that's that's a little bit of I think those are the things we have to go through when I do I'm doing concert I feel like almost like I'm giving birth (laughs) like you're birthing a concert and we go through lots to do that and um, we all worry and you know agonize about it and everything and yet we still do it and my husband used to be hilarious he was absolutely not a musician he was he he was he was a structural engineer and his his specialty was hot concrete. We couldn't have been farther apart, but he really was European, he was Swedish and he really loved um, the arts and, and was very well educated in the arts. And he used to say to me, I, don't, I can't imagine doing what you do. I, what would possess anyone to want to get up there on stage in front of everybody? What would possess somebody to want to do that? I said, I just can't conceive of it. I can't, <clears throat> I can't understand people who want to do it, but since you want to do it, I'm going to help you. <laughs> It's not right. Like other people look at us and think, "What's wrong with them?" But there's somebody of love hate relationship with it, right? So we have to do it. And and back to Roger Stevens, he he once upon a time said to my parents when we were thinking about music school, he said, "You only do this if you have to." He said, "Don't do it if you don't have to. If you have to." then those are the people who should do this. And I mean, maybe there's some truth in that because yeah. you gotta have a kind of passion and motivation. Do you believe that? Or do you feel like, you know, there's so many different paths that people can take these days in music. There's so many avenues that, um, I don't know, that you, you should just pursue where your heart kind of takes you. But if you don't end up in a career in it, that's okay. Of course. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's a lot to say on that topic, but we, we change, you know, we don't stay the same and, and people discover passions as they go along, things they didn't even know existed. Right. I mean, all, all of us that happens, college students don't really know that yet, but we know that. And, you know, you can find things that, oh my goodness, this is so amazing. And, and I, I like to do this. And so Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree on that. And, and, you know, the people that I, I work with are multi-gifted. Yeah. So they don't only have, sometimes they're amazing writers. Uh, There have been visual artists go through. Um, Kate Lem is a very famous photographer at this point, but she, she was also a superb flutist, you know? So, I mean, I could, I could go on there. There are some surgeons and some lawyers and, and they're extremely happy. Some of them are actually doing litigation for orchestras, you know, so they found, you know, ways to, really serve um the musical community and they are very very happy so um 
everybody is different. But I think maybe what Roger Stevens said is still true that if you have, a, it's actually what you said, if you, if you really have something in your heart, then I am a person who wants to go with the glasses is half full, not, not half empty. Yeah. I, I believe you should go for that passion because there's reason that's in your heart. Yeah. You know, you have, you probably have what you need for that. Well, Bonnie, thanks so much for sharing so much about your life. And uh, it was really fantastic hearing your wild stories. You certainly have quite a lot to share. <laughs> uh, so just thank you again. It was really a pleasure having you. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. And this has all been really, really fun to talk to you. Great. Well, thank you again. Okay, thanks.